0: Hello and welcome back to episode 4 of the Power of Youth podcast. Today we will be discussing youth protests and we have some very special guests with us today. We have Daisy and Vivian, uh, organisers and people involved with the school Strike for Climate. Thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. So I think to start with, we just want to ask your a broad question, just to get to know you and what you've you've been doing in the community, and that is, what are you passionate about, and where has that led you in the last twelve months, let's say?
1: Oh, that's a pretty big question, and I think for both of us, um, quite an obvious answer. Something that I am really passionate about is um, climate change, or actually, you know, getting climate action, and um, so I've known about the threat of climate change for a really long time. Both of my parents um, work in, you know, renewable energy fields. So I've always been aware um, of the threat that climate change poses. And it seemed ridiculous to me that the rest of our society was not as aware as I was of this kind of impending doom. Um, and so in November of 2018, I heard about um, Greta Thunberg, who was striking every Friday in Sweden to get climate action from her government. And I heard about her international call out for November 30th, so kids around the world will strike on November 30th, and I thought that sounded friggin' incredible. So I wanted to join in and do that, and <laughs> that's how I got started with School Strike for Climate. And yeah, since then, I've been um, campaigning, organising. Um, I was in, so I am from the electorate of Baringa, where in the last federal election, we got rid of Tony Abbott, <laughs> which was, a huge victory.
0: Very nice. Um,
1: yeah. So, just a little bit about me. Um, yeah. And I think for me, uh, what I'm really passionate about is um, helping people. And I think, you know, being a city kid, I was never, I well, I hadn't been until a couple of months ago with the smoke, but I hadn't been directly affected by climate change. And I think, you know, seeing the science made me realise that if no one else was going to take action, then I should. And luckily hundreds of thousands now millions of young people joined me in that you know same line of thought and I think we've really been able to grow a huge amount you know these past few months coming together uh like you know I was actually at the UN climate conference in December last year and I'd never met any of these kids before but we all instantly became really close friends because we were there for the same reason we were fighting for the same thing and I think it's really helped break down barriers um, for me uh just you know, around the world, and uh, it's really amazing to see so many young people um, take their future into their own hands, but it's at the same time,
0: terrifying. Yeah, that's awesome. I think obviously the youth protest is something which has really captured the attention of people in all walks of life over the past few months. But I'm just wondering why did you decide that they were the best course of action to achieve your goal? Why did you decide to start them and that? That's what you wanted to do to achieve the goals that you had in mind.
1: um well, and, yeah, I mean it wasn't really our idea <laughs> it started yeah and soon I guess, but the the great thing about the school strike or I and mean, the thing that really makes it very effective is that we as children, we really have the moral high ground because you know like <laughs> it's you know the the current generation, our generation. Of young people, we are the ones who will be the most affected by climate change, and there's no way, you know, there's no way to get around that. It's like, you know, um, and I think that's that's part of why the strikes are so effective, um, because in, there's no way, there's no, you know, that. Well, <laughs> I mean, unless you're, unless you're really you know, very, very right-leaning and just complete climate denial. There's kind of no way to get around the fact that we are, that you know, we're striking because our futures really are on the line. Um, not to mention that the strike is incredible just because they bring so many people together. Daisy? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why we decided to start striking, I think, you know, obviously Greta was the first one, um, but, at, you know, by the same token we also had to make that decision was this really the best course of action and I think we've been left with no alternative we've gone out on the weekends we've um, talked in class, we've sent letters to politicians um, we've been out on social media and unfortunately none of it has cut through and for us like this is the only thing that really has cut through um, other times and we've only missed a few days of school so not like we're <laughs> It's, it's not it's like when doing our actual coursework, and I think uh, so for us, it's a really effective um, and efficient method of actually getting um, cutting through the political bubble. Uh, unfortunately, we're yet to see action from this government, but we've certainly kept a lot of people on their toes. And with the bushfire crisis now, um, I've really seen a shift in how the public responds to talk about climate change, and also how the public uh, deals with the government bobsmacking smacking inability to tackle this crisis. Yeah, but so just quickly there as well, I completely agree with that. And just jumping back to the quote before about, you know, us, we really do um, hardly miss a lot of school through the strikes and um, really it's a lot of our free time that goes into it. Um and one of our one of our lead organizers in Sydney who graduated this year, she got an ATAR of over ninety nine. So that really that really that really disproves that argument that it's bad for our school work. Just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. Um
2: well with this whole missing school situation, why do you think it is out of cause out of a lot of this, the biggest reactions I ever saw was adults complaining that students were missing a day of school. Why do you think they've chosen to latch onto that rather than latch onto the message that you're trying to put forth?
1: Um, I think like I think for uh, those adults that are responding like that, you know there is a genuine concern that kids are missing school um, but at the same time, I think it's more this astonishment that young people will actually take to the streets to get what they need. Um, and I think there was a bit of shock value to it which uh, kind of garnered that response. But also, I don't think young people. Gen- I don't think adults generally like young people calling them out for their inaction. Um, and for me, like uh, when I was talking to a lot of people who had that response, they were kind of mad that they hadn't seen the action in the first place, and they thought it should be up to the government. Young people shouldn't have to be out on the streets for this, but unfortunately we do. And again, with the bushfires and with kids actually being forced to miss a day of school because of the risk of school. <laughs> Uh, right. Because of the risk smoke or the fires, or yeah, the risk of their school being burnt down. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, it's just at this point, it's, it's the hypocrisy of it is really exposed. You know, when all these, you know, right wing politicians, are, you know, they're in huge uproar because they're missing one day of school, and then, <laughs> and then, the, and then children's schools burn down because, you know, they cut funding and didn't have enough plans in place to prevent the horrible, horrible fires that we're we're having at the moment, or to, you know, prevent the severity of the fires. That's really hypocritical.
3: Like you've touched on before, the government has been seen to be lacking in making new policy changes. And I just wanted to ask you about youth protesting, because the point of protesting is to initiate change by pressuring the government to take action. And the reason the government responds to it is to ensure the voters are happy but because the foundation of youth protest is the youth do you think the government will respond in the same way as voting age protesters and are they more likely to wait until you are of voting age to make the su- these suggestions part of their policy
1: i think the government is still under the impression that they have quiet australians on their side um and i think part of the reason obviously that they didn't take that they haven't taken action is because they don't see, as you said, um, people who can't vote yet as, uh, you know, as a worry. Uh, however, after September 20th, um, having talked to a few politicians, I did see a bit of a shift inside as people started to panic because adults as well as kids were coming out on the streets. Um, and also now I think they're facing a fair bit of pressure. You seen a lot of um, change in the rhetoric from the government uh, You know, still nowhere near enough, but still a bit of change um, in the midst of this crisis uh, because Australians who've lost their homes, um, some have lost their lives, and people are coming out and they're saying, This is not enough. Maybe, you know, they might say, I've been a Liberal voter, but I cannot endorse this any longer. I will not be voting Liberal in the next election. Um, And we're starting to see the government just panic a little bit because they're realising that their inaction is actually going to cost them votes, it's going to cost them uh, their government. And I would say what we need to do following this is need to keep up the pressure, need to keep highlighting the the government's lack of action, but I think they're doing a pretty good job of that themselves Um, and we'll see where it takes us towards the next election. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. So I'll just jumping quickly. Mm-hmm. Um but something that has been really interesting to see especially as, like it's because of the, you know, the toxic smoke that's um covering Sydney and a lot of a lot of parts of Australia is that people who, you know, this is the first time that people have been directly impacted by climate change mm-hmm. other than, you know, like hotter days which are easy to you know, easy to curb if you stay inside in the air conditioning. Um, But, you know, this is the first time that people have really been affected by climate change in a, you know, in a very, very real way. And it's, it's mobilised people who otherwise wouldn't have been interested in the climate change debate. So you're seeing, you know, for example, like suburban moms who can't who can't take their kids outside and they're going crazy because they have to keep their kids inside the house. It's a bit like it's very little things like that, but all the same, they are being affected and they are, now they are waking up and wanting to take action. So I think that's that's the change that we're seeing now, and it also definitely has made the politicians aware that they're like. The politicians are aware that this change is occurring as well, um, It remains to be seen how much and in what capacity they respond to that.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's really sad to see that it's taken this catastrophic event for people to start talking about climate change. And as of Monday 6th, I've just got some statistics here, 7 million hectares of land have burned, 1,700 homes have been destroyed, 23 people have been killed, And an astonishing half a billion animals have perished. So it is really sad that this has occurred, but it's also really good to see, like you said, this has initiated people's thoughts about climate change Mm -hmm. and people's um, decisions of how to live in the future.
1: Yeah, totally. And just on that point as well, you know the government—they like to—they like, well, they're one of their main excuses for not taking climate action is that it's so expensive. But you know this is—they also have to realise that there's a cost of not taking action, and this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, 23 lives. Um, I'm not sure what you said. 17,000 homes, is it? 1700.
3: Yeah.
1: Which 1700. is still so many. But still, it's a lot. And you know, seven million hectares—it's it's so so much. That's been destroyed and you know that is the cost of not acting and just talking about it from an economic perspective it's two billion dollars you know that this is costing Australia and Australia is already heading into a recession the only reason we're going to get a budget surplus is because the government actually cut funding to a number of areas including the arts and so you know what we're seeing is like we're not only seeing you know, the cost in life, but what's actually going to break out the government is the cost economically because liberals are generally pretty, like, their heads are pretty in the economic game. And, you know, when we're looking at a crisis, to actually get people on their feet and actually demand action. The reason for that, I think, um, is my theory is that unless you're actually personally affected right here, right now, um, by something, especially climate change, it's, it's very easy to push it to the back of your mind because it's not relevant to you you can't see it happening you can't feel it happening. Um, so it's very easy to distance yourself from it. And so what we're seeing is now that people are actually being affected. Like Sydney today, I walked out of my house and ash was raining down on the pavement. Like, And, you know, that, that is climate change. We are being affected by it right here, right now. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot more anger. And I think, you know, around the country this Friday, Extinction Rebellion and Uni Students for Climate Justice will be putting on uh, a protest, um, which has tens of thousands of people interested or going, uh, which I think is a really good indication that particularly if this is happening in the school holidays, um, we don't see protests that week. And I would say that, you know, the Friday is potential to be huge. And the reason for that is people are being directly affected by climate change. They want to see action and they're going to take to the streets to get it.
2: Yeah, well, one of the really interesting quotes i guess from the prime minister that has really stuck with me during this um bushfire crisis is that he said quite early on that there should be no knee-jerk reactions as he put it to this crisis and i find it interesting because when you look at another natural disaster that had happened recently with the volcano in new zealand the response we got from the prime minister then I thought was the one we should be, we should have been getting for the bushfires at the time and I just want to know what your thoughts on that are.
1: Well, I haven't seen that response, but I think, um, you know, what I would say is that this Prime Minister lacks empathy and I think he's answered, his literal answer, having, I know someone who used to be in the Pentecostal uh, religion and Uh, his literal response is thoughts and prayers. And so with the volcano, it's a tangible, like it's, it's a fixable issue. It's not like he can't control the volcano. It's not his fault. It's very easy for him to get in and actually help out. Whereas when it comes to an issue such as the fires, unfortunately it is a political issue because he looks really bad because he hasn't taken action and he's been advocating against climate action for not only months, but years now. Um, and so for him, it, must, like, it would be very easy to shut down and kind of panic. Um, and instead, he's kind of putting on this smug facade because he doesn't know what else to do. I think he's like, personally, I think he's really incapable of understanding human emotion. And I think he, he's singing, using his wife and his children as a shield in front of the media. And that's because he's panicking because he doesn't know how to interact with the public. It something that he is so clearly partially responsible for. Mm. I mean, my opinion of the prime minister is not as scathing as Daisy's, but I do agree in the sense that, you know, um, the uh, with a with a volcano in New Zealand, yeah, again, that's something where it's easy to, you know, offer empathy and support because you're not directly responsible for it and you know of course he's not directly he's not directly responsible for the fires in the sense that he didn't go out and set them himself but he did you know he was warned months in advance about the um about the severity of this this year's fire season and still chose to cut funding and um you know and And then, you know, when the fires got really, really bad, he went on holiday to Hawaii. And that's not to say he doesn't deserve to go on holiday, just not while the nation's in a crisis and he hasn't been doing anything about it. So um, I think, but I think he's realised now I don't think it's it's because of a lack of empathy. I just don't, I just think he miscalculated the whole thing. Didn't realise how bad it was going to look for him. And now he's trying to backtrack and you know win back voters by being out on the front lines. But you know it's it's a little too little too late in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think over the last month I I, I do believe that Scott Morrison has changed his thoughts and he has moved positively. You know we started with the whole Hawaii debacle. He was still. A climate skeptic and now he's kind of moved towards um saying okay it's real i believe that there's a link over the last week he's he's definitely um started some initiatives to support i'm just wondering what do you think he should be doing more now
1: um i to be honest like um I've, always, I've gone out in the political bubble um my dad is Albanese speechwriter and I know a lot of politicians and I interact with them on a regular basis Um, and there is very little faith about what Scott Morrison will actually do on the wake of these fires Um, particularly in terms of climate action so uh, he's doing right now what people demanded of him months ago so to you know give relief to those who suffered from the bushfires to pay the RFS volunteers or to compensate them, and he's only done that under political pressure. And, like, you know, I don't want to sound like an asshole, but he is doing the bare minimum, and he's only doing it now because he's going to look even more horrific if he doesn't. And he's also said that he will not take he will not change the government's climate policy, and we desperately need to change our climate policy because while we may not be the largest domestic emitter in the world. We're the highest emitter per capita. We're also the third largest exporter of emissions behind Russia and Saudi Arabia, who really aren't a you know, couple of countries who we want to be in a top three with. And so we have a lot to answer for in terms of climate action. Undoubtedly, Australia's inaction has contributed to this crisis. And so what we need to see, what we're seeing, and this is part of a problem with the short-termism in politics, is... Um, is we're seeing more of a band-aid approach uh, to this issue where we're sticking a band-aid on this crisis and saying it's all going to be okay but eventually that band-aid is going to come off and that scab is going to break open and start bleeding again and uh, we can't afford to let that happen and as the planet gets warmer Australia needs to take action obviously there needs to be global action but when Australia stands up at a world conference and advocates for climate action but is not doing its part it's very it's really hypocritical and we do have a big part to play ourselves in this ourselves in this and as this said the you know uh the cost of inaction will be deadly 30 years ago we should have been taking climate action and it would have been a lot cheaper then unfortunately our action is going to have to be a lot more drastic and it's going to have to be a steeper decline in emissions now and it's going to cost more But down the track, it is going to be unbelievably expensive. And, you know, how many more lives is it going to cost? How many more homes is it going to cost before this government finally gets us and actually thinks we really need to take action? And they get out there and they apologise and they put together a real climate policy that is actually going to put Australia on the map as as a country that's taking climate action.
3: So on the School Strike for Climate website, there are three main requests that are on there that are at the centre of the goal of your youth protests. And those are no new coal, oil and gas projects, including the Adani mine, 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030, and fund a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and communities. So if you guys were in government right now, what would you be doing differently? And how do you think these goals can be put into action without um, ruining the Australian economy?
1: Um, Well, I think it really depends on what level of government we'd be in. Um, But I think... Well, I mean, (laughs) the phrasing is interesting you say without ruining the economy. I think while... um, Definitely, there are ways to deal with the climate crisis where you know we could uh, we could actually turn you know into into a source of revenue. For example, changing agriculture practices. At the moment, the um, so I think there's predictions that the great global soil will not be fertile anymore in 60 years if we don't change um, farming practices now. And so, there's ways to do it, like regenerative farming and things like that that actually will bring in um, will bring in You know, revenue. But um, I think, yeah, we've left it. We've left it too late now. To you know, there's there's as there is with any period of change, um, it's going to be uncomfortable for a bit. It's you know, it's going to be new. Um, And in in that sense, you know, there will be some unrest when Australia switches over to carbon neutral because it will impact the economy. But I think. You know, the surefire way of running the Australian economy into the ground is not taking climate action. And you know, any any steps that we would take, um, you know, to bring down emissions, to be prepared for the impacts of climate change, those to save us money. So um, yeah, that's what I think in terms of economy. And as a politician, I guess I'd be trying to um, yeah to implement climate action in any way I could. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we obviously should have reinvested in renewables a long time ago. They, you know, it's an economically viable uh, system of creating energy and of creating revenue. Um, and as well as that, like, you know, just getting one question, like possible question out of the way, a lot of people ask me about nuclear power. Now, two decades ago, that might have been economically viable, but it's now a lot more expensive and it's just like, it's not. Really, an economically wise option for Australia to be investing in nuclear energy when we have so much available in terms of solar, wind, hydro. Um, And uh, I think what Australia needs to do now is, we haven't. The reason we haven't even begun the groundwork to actually transition away from fossil fuels from the fossil fuel industry. And I think the problem, you know, that arises from that is that because we have no problem. When politicians eventually realise, like down the track, that we needed to transition, you know, decades ago, it's going to be a drastic, uh, it's going to be a drastic turnaround that's going to leave a lot of people out of jobs. Um, so what we need to see is a just transition policy, and uh, that's the school strike third demand. Um, and what I mean when I say that is we actually need to be taking care of our workers in the fossil fuels uh industry and so that means providing jobs that means trying to keep those communities together because their identities and their livelihoods are tied into the coal industry and a lot of these towns are economically reliant on the fossil fuel industry and so what we need to do is we actually we don't even have a plan uh for these towns and commu- you know for these people um and i think that's a huge uh that's a huge failure on all parties' parts because they don't haven't put anything together. And I think if I was in government, that's something I would be focusing on right here, right now. And there are now a lot of communities aside from the fossil fuel industry that are being affected uh, by climate change that are losing their jobs. A lot of regional communities have lost all uh, their economic, um, I would say, their economic stability due to these fires. And so I think, you know, not only do we need to focus on getting those communities back up off the ground, but we also need to focus on keeping these towns and these families functioning as we transition to uh, renewable energy. And so, um, and then another thing, sorry, just quickly, another thing is that, you know, when transitioning away from fossil fuel in the fossil fuel industry, a lot of people well, why can't they just work in the renewable energy industry? Well, those so jobs aren't unionised. They're often only temporary and in construction. Um, they don't last forever. They're not They're not the only viable solution to this. Uh, so there's a lot of planning involved. It's not going to be an easy pro- process. We can't sugarcoat it. But at the same time, if I was in government, what I would expect to be seeing is people actually sitting down and going, how can we transition? How can we make? How can we keep Australia on the map? Economically, um, and how can we keep these families and communities together? Because currently, you know, communities in the fossil fuel industry are being kept up at the expense of people in these regional communities who are being affected by the fires. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think that's just just adding on to that. I think that's one, um, you know, kind of misconception, and you know, maybe we're um, a little bit in the truth, but. You know the conception is kind of that um, you know all these climate movements they don't care about um, about I guess the fate of um, the coal workers and things like that and I think um, yeah previously it, there's even been a little bit it's even been you know a little bit of an antagonistic um, relationship between um, you know, between the people in these um, coal reliant communities and people who are working towards climate action, that doesn't need to be that way. And you know, we actually, we, you know, I, we all, we all want the same. Um, we all want the same outcome. And the reason, um, the, re- you know, the reason that I strike for the climate is because I want a, f- I want a future that, um, you know, where we really have the best for everyone, and that includes people from. Um, these the reliant communities, and yeah, you know, we we just want to do we just we want to do the best we can by everyone, and um, yeah. So at the moment, that's that's not being done because, as Daisy said, there's there's no plan in place. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, great. I think obviously politics is a huge um force in creating change and momentum, and also shifting uh community perspectives. But I think another aspect which is almost just as uh, influential is the media. And I'm just interested in how, if you could control the media, how would you um, control it? How do you think it can support this movement better?
1: Um, I think what we need to see from the media is reliable reporting. And that's on both sides of politics. Um, And at the moment, I mean, I've just seen spectacular levels of bias from uh, papers such as The Australian, which like, I know it has a very low readership, but a lot of people in the political bubble read it. And, like, when it comes to reporting on the bushfire crisis, one day when the government monumentally bugged it up, if it had been Labour or Liberal, it should have been on the front of the paper, uh, but instead uh, they were criticising Labour for some reason. They were also attacking the ABC, they were attacking student activists, and they were t- claiming there was some Islamic terror threat. And after reading all of those art- articles, you can, like, there was no factual basis uh to i think three of them and they were the headlines for that day and at the same time you know talking about that but i also want to mention the project um in there they spliced a video of a woman who uh they showed in a three second clip being introduced to scott morrison and she said he's not my prime minister and everyone went wild and they were like oh you know good on her you know she's a pensioner, she's getting out finding flyers and she's confronting the Prime Minister but she was actually saying that she's British and that Boris Johnson is her Prime Minister and I think that level, you know, that reporting was quite irresponsible and it also looked to discredit uh, people who are actually trying to get the government to take some action um, and calling it out its action uh, so I, you know, really would love to see journalists kind of um I and mean, you know when I say journalists, there are you know the Murdochs are undoubtedly a huge influence behind the media in the world today, um, and I don't think that I don't think that's a good thing because I think reporting should be ad- objective and done without personal bias. Um, although there's always going to be some opinion involved, um, and I think what we really need to see is um, journalists out there and actually reporting the news. Um, and I've seen a lot of. Uh, a, a lot of papers um, and a lot of media do that, uh, but at the same time, there's still this kind of flare up of the political debate. And um, as we've seen, like you know, climate deniers still getting a voice in the media. And by you know, by giving them a voice in the media, you are you are essentially you know giving that side of you know that side of the debate a lot more credibility than it deserves because it's not relying on any scientific consensus. Um and often is funded by the fossil fuel industry. And so I think, you know, I just our media has our media plays a huge role in politics. Uh not as big as it used to be because of the role of social media now. Uh but I think, you know, given that social media is so unreli- unreliable, why does our media have to be? And yeah. I mean, I think in um, you know, in in my opinion, I yeah, I definitely agree that you know there needs to be more truth in journalism, and um, you know I the I can compare it almost to <laughs> to the anti-vaccine thing. You know the, the problem with um it's it's you know it's really it, it really echoes that debate like uh, with climate change um, in the sense that you know I think it's something like 98% of of doctors or even 99% of doctors say that vaccines aren't harmful or, you know, they might carry some side effects, but it's no way as bad as the um, anti-vaxxers make it seem. But then the anti-vaxxers, they- you know they're given so much attention by the media and you know they have so many of their own websites and um, blog posts and you know social media pages that it seems like the debate is um you know like the debate is almost 50 50 and i think that a similar thing um has been happening in you know the right-wing press and the Murdoch press um and that's also echoed on social media that you know we have, what, 97% of climate science, of scientists who believe that climate, or not believe, who have proven that climate change um, is having these disastrous um, impacts such as bushfires floods, um, you know, extended heat waves, so huge problems environmentally but also socially because they impact on health um, and infrastructure. So, um, you know, you have 97% of scientists saying that but then you have the media distorting it and you know denying the link between climate change and these bushfires and then the debate seems a lot less clear than it actually is. And I think that's a huge huge problem. And then not to mention um, <laughs> you know, I would I would call it a scam to be honest you know the um, you know the Murdoch press blaming the green for the bushfires even though they had absolutely you know they had absolutely no control.
2: Yeah well one thing I've always found interesting is that you said there that 97% statistics you know for me if someone went and saw 100 doctors because they were feeling ill and 97 of those doctors said you were sick and you need some you really desperately need some help but 3 said no i think the vast majority of people would then go with the three the would ignore the three sorry and that said action. that yeah, and take action whereas for some reason it seems to be really, really different with something as big as the climate. And, you know, you have, well, I think the biggest offenders are publications like, you know, Sky News, where you have, you know, the characters like Andrew Bolt and Paul Murray really pressing these anti-climate change stances and, you know, finding those three scientists who (laughs) are very, who tend to be very highly discredited but find yeah, those totally. three, to, yeah, to find those three you You're right
1: right. That's a perfect yeah. comparison. It's a perfect comparison because, you know, yeah, it, like that's exactly right. If you were told by, by 97 doctors that you had cancer and needed treatment, then you would get treatment. You wouldn't, you wouldn't just because three doctors told you, you wouldn't risk your life like that. And that's, you know, that's exactly the approach that governments internationally need to take because, you know, like climate change has been, you know, you know, it's not up for debate anymore, but even if it were, you would still, you know, you would still want to prevent that risk if it would be that um, detrimental to you. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of mind boggling that, you know, that so little has been done. I think part of that, in my personal opinion, it's because it's such a, climate change is such a huge, big, scary thing. You know, it's absolutely terrifying that people rather than deal with it tend to kind of shut down and ignore it i think that's kind of been the response that we've seen in politics recently or or you know on the other hand that's um because you can't see it and it's not real until it's at your front door basically that it's also easier to ignore
3: mm. like you said even if climate change wasn't real let's just pretend it isn't and there is no real threat fossil fuels will eventually run out anyway so it is beneficial for us, anyway way to start investing in renewable infrastructure for the future?
1: Yeah, totally. And the same and the same thing goes for the well, um, climate friendly, carbon um, carbon neutral possibilities in agriculture and infrastructure. You know, um, regenerative farming just makes so much more sense than the way we currently farm the land. Um, and same thing goes for you know, for example, electric vehicles. Um, the or you know, ride sharing and more public transport, all these options—they um, they're just, they're, just—they—they make a lot more sense than going diesel and you know, having these huge amounts of traffic and congestion on others.
0: Yeah, I just want to look at one different aspect of protests as well, which is getting a bit more scrutiny. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the ones in Brisbane, where you've got protesters. Uh, like duct taping themselves to streets. You've got them uh, blocking out roads and stopping traffic, you know, having people going to work and then they're just stuck on the road for hours. You know, just those things which really stop the flow of a city. And I just wanna know what your thoughts are um, on those really extreme types of protests because I feel that often because they're so extreme, they detract from the actual message that those people are trying to get across.
1: I will, you know, I want to stand in solidarity with all of those who've gone out to demand climate action. Um, but, of course, I think, you know, that there is action that's uh, really going to garner positive attention and there is action that is not. Um, and for me, uh, that kind of presence in Australia is that, you know, uh, the getting out and standing in, you know, sitting in the middle of the road and uh, duct taping, um you know, uh, and people duct taping themselves to things. I think, you know, it can be justified, but at the same time, I think in this political climate, particularly Australia is such an anti-protest country. We like to talk about how we don't care about uh, authority, but we um, have a remarkable, remarkably unhealthy deference to it, I would say. Um, and uh, so I just I think that it negatively affects the climate movement because people then interpret it as lefty hippies. Um, and uh, even if they do agree with taking climate action, they don't want to identify as that. Um, and so I think you know the inconvenience, excuse my language, really pissed a lot of people off. I think it's made a lot of people concerned that we're not going to get the climate action because of those protests. And while I think there was a lot of effort and thought that went into them, um, I don't, I really genuinely don't think that they helped. And what I do think helps is when it's an inclusive protest that invites everyone out to the streets, regardless of which side of politics you stand on. And I think when everyone is given that option to go out and have it be a safe protest, that's when you see the people who generally wouldn't come out the streets for anything. They think this is a safe environment for me to use my voice, for me to stand in solidarity with something and express my opinion. Um, And I think, you know, that's kind of the reason the strikes have been so big. But I also think that's part of the reason, you know, this Friday there's a protest, um, which is generally people, it is people angry at the government over their inaction. But it's not promising anything illegal. It's not saying there's going to be any violence. I think it's run by XR as well. Um, And it's just inviting people to come out and take a stand. Um, And I think that's, you know, I think that's a really good thing. And I'd say that's probably where we're going to see the most change, uh, whereas smaller protests um, that are more drastic haven't really helped the movement from my perspective. Yeah, I would agree with Daisy in the sense that, you know, the big strides, like what School Strike Climate has been doing and also, you know, taking a completely different movement, like the Women's Marches, Those have been really, those have been really successful because they're inclusive, they they get really big, they get a lot of media attention, um, and, you know, and people feel safe and, you know, enjoy going to those protests, I would say. I think I wouldn't, something like, you know, that a few, I I think a few months ago, um, you know, Greenpeace activists, they have sailed off the Harbour Bridge, you know, things like that. I wouldn't even really call them protests. They're just, they're just kind of stunts. And I, yeah, well, I don't necessarily think they they detract from the movement because they, they're still definitely raising awareness and, you know, get people talking about it. But I just, I also think it's not the right way. I think it's not the right way to go about um, about demanding action because, you know, they, they can be done in a lot more inclusive Safe ways where you where you really get everybody involved
2: rather than yeah you know making a stunt. Yeah, well that's something I think good about the um, youth youth protest movement is that you know that the fact that you can attract three hundred thousand kids to to one um, event rather than just say two or three people absailing down the harbour bridge. You know your average. Australian seeing that in the news or reading about that on Facebook is going to see those three people who do that stunt as quite isolated, irresponsible, careless kind of people, whereas when you see a group of maybe 300,000 gathered, that's a real, like, oh, wow, okay, this has a real support behind it. Maybe there's a bit of credence to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I knew that action... Um, with the upselling down from the Harbour Bridge, I knew what was happening, um, and there was a lot of excitement around uh, around it. And um, and I think from memory, something went wrong, and they weren't able to unfurl a banner, so it ended up looking pretty weak. And I think it could have made a real statement, but as you said, I think you know illegal actions like that. I think you know while I do think they're warranted, I also think that they're not really like. You have to be, it's different, we are different to other countries. In Europe, people are quiet, ready to go out in the streets, squish up against each other and really, you know, demand what they want. Um, But here in Australia, we have to do a bit more of a gentle coaxing for people to get out in the streets. They don't want to face retribution. They also generally don't, uh, there's a lot of like, there's kind of this epidemic um, globally of, you know, saying I don't care about politics or my vote doesn't count or my voice doesn't count because people are seeing themselves consistently failed by our democracy. Um, And so I think, you know, in Australia, you have to be a lot gentler. You have to come out, sit down and have a conversation with someone. You have to kind of joke about it. And while, you you know, while we don't want to compromise and we want to just get out in the streets and say, you need to take action right now, um, it's a bit more complex than that and unfortunately we have to be willing to go to the yards and when we're thinking about taking action you know it can't be to satisfy our own ego what we really have to do is we n- need to sit down and really analyze the situation and think could that you know is it more likely are we more likely to see positive change come from this than negative and unfortunately um, you know while a lot of people uh, are, are really amazing and they're incredible activists like everyone you know makes mistakes along the way i suddenly have and i've only been in this game for a year um and i think you know there are some actions that just aren't thought through as much as they need to be in terms of how it's whether or not it's going to change the political landscape at all but uh suddenly if it is is it going to do it in a negative or positive way
0: yeah cool do you think climate change and solving climate change does that need to at at this point in time does it need to start at the top end or the bottom end does it need to start with the politicians or does it need to start with the people and individuals in their own lives and in their own households
1: um i think that needs to come it needs to come from both ends honestly and i think um because we really are on a clock with um taking climate action we don't have we don't have time to debate where it starts from um, in saying that, the you know, um, people there there is a there is kind of a difference between um, between the uh, the gravitas of individual action and then political action. We like we know that the only way will we will be able to get you know um, get Australia carbon neutral is by you know pushing this across the line on a political scale you know, individual action, it's so important, but it is not enough. It, like, it, it just cannot be enough when we're in this race against time. So, um, you know, individual action is very important and, you know, it leads to, it does lead to, you know, kind of growing movements, um, such as, you know, vegetarian and veganism. As much as <laughs> as much as they get made fun of, it is is—it is something really important and it is making a difference. Um, but, you know, it's it just, cannot be understated how important the uh, political response is to this and we have no hopes of um we have no hopes of uh you know becoming carbon neutral or you know stopping the climate crisis without political action mm. yeah you... and you know sorry, oh, sorry i'll just I'm like i keep adding on to things, yeah. but um i <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know i would say that while individual action is, yes, it's important. And like, you know, yeah, I'm vegetarian. And yesterday I took, I went on a nine hour train ride to avoid getting on a 45 minute flight. And, you know, that's that's more drastic than most people are willing to do, but it's also more drastic than a lot of people have the capacity to do. And so, you know, every individual has, you know, they've got economic reasons, or they have personal health reasons, or family reasons, or religious reasons uh, for not being able to totally invest in individual sustainability, and that is totally understandable. And you know, part of the reason for that is that we have to work with the system that we've got, and currently the system that we've got doesn't encourage individual sustainability. It's not, it doesn't make it a, you know, an easy lifestyle for everyone. So you really have to go the extra yards. And it's not necessarily more expensive to live sustainably, uh, sustainably, but it can be. Um, uh, like even you know, getting the train home yesterday was more expensive than getting on a flight. And it you know, so I think you know, it's great to see. I've seen a lot of people really step out over the over the last few months. Um, but yeah, as as Gid said, like without political action, without action at the top, without corporations actually. Uh, investing um, responsibly in renewable energy um, and in a more sustainable agriculture. I think we just, we won't see the change that we absolutely need to see. Yeah, I just, yeah, if I can make a quick comparison because this, <laughs> this happened to me the other day and, you know, I was thinking about it. Um, so I was at Macca's and... <laughs> As you do, and I was, I got a frozen coke, and I was thinking, you know, um, maybe I won't get a straw because, you know, plastic bags we don't like that. But then, um, but then, you know, it's, it you know it occurred to me that, you know, I, you know, I can take or leave a straw today, and it won't even, you know, won't even make a dent in the whole um, in the whole operation. But if, you know, if McDonald's change to paper straws or you know whatever you know if they made a change in that way it would do way more than me choosing not to take a straw one time so I think that's the that's that's kind of how I think about it um you know that's watering down individual action a little bit and doing it less credit than it deserves but you know it, it really it really does I think goes to show that we, yeah, we can't achieve it without um, political action.
3: Mm-hmm. Like you've touched on, we need everybody on board to save the planet. So do you have hope in the Australian public that they will make sacrifices in their everyday lifestyles for the good of the planet? Or do you think it's a lost cause?
1: Um, I think we can expect to see uh, more Australians um, looking at their lifestyles and taking action. Um, but as I said, I just think, you know, it's not a super viable uh, option for many Australians. Um, And, you know, particularly when people are already struggling with the bushfires and are already being directly affected um, by climate change, it's a lot uh, more difficult to change up your lifestyle. Um, But I do think, you know, I think uh, at the moment, you know, in terms of climate action, we really just need to see the government take those first steps. Even baby steps is not enough, but we need—they haven't taken them yet—and um, uh, so for me, it's like I love to see people taking action as individuals to live more sustainably. Uh, but I think the emergency that we're in demands immediate political action straight from the top. Yeah,
0: awesome. I think just to close with um, for today's podcast, you know, our podcast is all about you know, sharing youth perspective on global issues and we really do believe that youth have power to create change. And from your um, actions in life and what you're getting up to, how would you encourage these youth to have a voice, to stand for their own views and to really uh, make change in terms of climate change?
1: Um, well, I think more, more generally just, you know, um, young people... Young people have this uh, this real capability to create change. We've seen it not just um you know, not just in the climate action movement, but also um especially in the US with gun control and then um, you know, with women's rights and, you know, protecting women and um you know like violence against women, all those protests and those groups, that's that's young people and that's young people getting active and that's young people taking a stand for what they believe in. I think that's such a great thing about the youth of today is that we're so passionate and um yeah there are there are a lot of issues in the world and you just need to decide um what you know what you, what the biggest priority is for you and what you want to get involved in and so i think you know just deciding what you're passionate about and then seeing how you can get involved um is really important with the climate movement in particular um i would say you know come along to the strike. um at the moment, um, there's a lot that, you know, there's a lot to be done in terms of um, bushfire, bushfire relief, um, donations are fantastic if you can raise money in any way or if you can donate um, products such as, you know, um, things that things that firefighters need, such as hydration packs and throat lozenges and, um, you know, all these different things. That's, uh, that's really important too. And, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to get involved. You just have to keep an eye out for what's, what's happening.
0: Yeah, awesome. I just want to finish with um, this quote that I really love by Martin Luther King, and he stated that he who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. That's a great quote. I think that's just yeah. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I think I think that's awesome, and I think the best way, like, to thank an activist because I think a lot of adults say um, to the kids, "You give us hope." And I think the best way to thank an activist, and particularly a child who's coming to go out to the streets to defend their future, uh, is to join them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we would love to talk forever, but unfortunately we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Daisy and Viv, for joining us. We really valued your opinion, your perspective, from people who are really fighting for this cause so courageously.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: And thank you all for joining us for episode four of the Power of Youth podcast. Uh, Please stay tuned for next week where we we will be discussing uh, the impact of social media on youth. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you.